What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello and welcome to episode 137 of What Most People Think. And let me tell you, I had this show recorded, right? I'm supposed to be off this week a little bit. You know, it's Easter holidays, spending time with the kid. And um, I, I was done. I'd, I'd done the show earlier. I put it to bed. And right, let's go out. What's that? They've issued the fines. Out. Oh, to Boris and Rishi. Fuck's sake. So I've had to re-record uh, the intro. I, I haven't had to re-record the whole show here. Look, I'm, I'm not saying that my uh, me having to re-record something is necessarily the biggest story in town. It certainly isn't, but uh, I haven't had to re-record the whole show because this is a special edition. So we're going to have the usual stuff. We're going to have a bit of a catch-up. But my the paperback of Where Did I Go Right is out on Thursday, April the 14th. And I thought I'd give you just a little treat if you haven't already Listen to the audio book is uh, another chapter. I did I did this when the first book first came out, but there's another chapter from my book, so you can just listen to a little bit of little bit of story time with Uncle Jeff. Never never sounds any less nancy, does it? But um, anyway, how's the Easter holiday treating you? If you've got kids, are you uh, are you already allowing them a bit more screen time? Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Okay, you five more minutes on there. Five more minutes, and then you think I've just watched the. I've just watched a whole Peaky Blinders since I said five minutes. But hey, they're learning, right? They're learning when they're playing PlayStation, surely. Uh, have you managed to avoid family commitments this weekend? I, I'm, I'm coming up on Easter weekend and, and no one has told me I need to be anywhere yet. So I'm, I'm just keeping shut the fuck up. All right, I, I'm shutting the fuck up. Uh, and if, if there are any plans coming in late, I'm just going to fake a COVID test. Uh, which seems reasonable. Um, thank you very much to the people that came to the One Tour show last week, which was Aberdeen. That, what an incredible crowd that was. It was, um, it was just me. There was no support. And, and when it's just you, it, it can be a lot of fun, but you think those first 10 minutes are important. Do you know what I mean? Because you, you don't want to get up there and be 10 minutes in and not really have got any laughs. But my God, I don't know if these people were on drugs or space cakes. But for the whole 80, 90 minutes of the show, I think it was in the end, uh, we had a good time up there. Uh, so we will, of course, this week be talking, as well as the little extract from the book, we will be talking about uh, the the fine gate, party gate. I mean, it's just... For, 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 the, the problem for the opposition, as I said the other week with Matt Ford, is that it just, it just doesn't sound serious enough, does it? It's, all, it's always undercut by the fact that you've got the word party uh, in the gate. Party. They need to. They need to be. You know, a few people pulled me up on this actually um, from the other week. That you said that I didn't push back on Matt hard enough when he said that um, if the government were fine, that they would be criminals. And I think that I thought that Matt had addressed that himself when he said, you know, about pushing it to the edge of kind of what is legally defensible. But yeah, I'm happy to say now um, they are not technically criminals. But it's not great, is it? It is not great. Uh, let's have the main talking point from last week's show. That was with Ishan Akbar. 
And David said, great uh, choice of guest in Ishan Akbar. Fascinating guest, interesting interview. He he said that he thinks Echo Chambers started in the early 2010s with the coalition government. And uh, so David goes on to point out that Conservative and Labour governments over the years have been de facto coalitions. The last Labour government ranged from neoliberal Blairites, Social Democrats, right through to the hard left. I mean, yeah, Tony Benn was still in the party, Dennis Skinner. Uh, well, John Prescott was supposed to be a proper lefty, but he liked the motors, didn't he? Oh, two jags, two jabs. <laughs> it's, it's still weird how how well we responded to John Prescott beating the shit out of that guy. Was it because the guy had a mullet? Um, the current Tories, as David said, have uh, libertarians, patricians, Thatcherites, mingling with neoliberal Blairites. And yeah, I suppose in a way, the only people that actually take on the fact that, you know, you have to find consensus across the house he's, he's actually mps now the rest of us we just shut it down we mute block look just don't talk to me okay if you're gonna vote for them just don't talk to me i mentioned it last week but that is gonna be a big thing even at the upcoming local elections and my god whatever the next general election is uh you'll have a return of the old look people could you just please unfriend me now if the tories win the next election after everything that's happened, particularly uh, over the last six months, but do you think we'll get a return of the people that promised to emigrate? I'm, I'm just, I'm so done with this country. I'm going to emigrate to Scotland and Scotland's going to go independent. And I'm, I'm just going to, I just despair. I just despair. <laughs> Um, new patrons which we'll do in a second the live show apologies about the live show there's supposed to be a live show uh, on Wednesday so the 13th when this show's going up but um, uh, for a number of fuck ups which are admittedly partly my no they're they're all my fault and that is now moving to Thursday of next week it will be happening I just um, I basically I jump on someone else's webinar package and uh, I hadn't fully checked that it was available. And anybody remember the last Patreon live show that uh, we did, when I tried to handle it myself, it was a fucking disaster. I kept on spotlighting members of the audience instead of who was, who was doing comedy. So it, it, trust me, it's better that we have it on uh, the 21st of April. And we've got a couple of two new VIP Patreons. Uh, these are definitely new people. Somebody called Dark Newt. Dark Newt. That just sounds like a dark nude. Just sounds like a shitty rock band from Australia. We are dark nude, yeah. And we're fighting back against the system. But uh, we don't really know what system these days. And in many ways, you know, the left-wing cultural power. We just have fucking dark nude. Ding, 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 ding. They'll, they'll do some really dark cover version of a, I'm from a land down under. And then they'll start doing the screams of the Aborigines. Um <laughs> That was dark. Dark new, that's what we do. Uh, Anthony Sissons. Now, I know, of course, there was Peter Sissons, but Anthony Sissons. Sissons is a good word to say. Sissons! That'd be a good... You. That's a name that you need to be... That's a surname you need to have at a, a public school, isn't it? Sissons, boy! Are you questioning me again, Sissons? Anthony Sissons. Anthony Sissons. Oh, that is, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like a fucking diplomat doesn't he? Or just some guy that's on some kind of like jolly up gig overseas. Uh, Anthony Sissons worked 25 years in Karachi for the Home Office, was able to get booze in even during the dark days. Anthony Sissons. Uh, So welcome both of you. Thank you for the support. And we'll be shouting out more new patrons a bit later in the show. 
we will now do the thank you and the fuck you. A thank you to Camel Fat. Now, you, a lot of you won't even know what that means. What is it, camel fat? What is it, some sort of treatment for the fact he's 45? Is it for his knees? You know, or is it because obviously he's so tall? Oh, by the way, okay, I've got a level with you. It turns out I might not be 5 foot 10. And I know some of you are in shock at that. You go, well, but he looks so 5 foot 10. I don't know where I got it from that I was 5 foot 10. It's really embarrassing because I've gone in big on it. And, uh, well, let's just add a little tape measure out recently and... Um, Look, I'd be doing well to be hitting five nine, and no one's surprised. I was the only person on planet Earth that actually thought that I was five foot ten. I think it's because I think it's because my sister told me she was five foot eight. When we took our shoes off, I was a good two inches taller than her, so I presume that I must be five ten. But um, anyway, I'm gonna. It's just between you and us. You not broadcast it a bit. I just wanna. I wanna tell tell the rest of uh, the social media sphere in my own time, and no. <laughs> <laughs> the least surprising news ever. You know, it's like John Barrowman coming out as gay. Oh, you're, you're not 5'10", Jeff. Surprise, surprise. Uh, but we went to see Camel Fat, who are a dance act. We went to see them at Wembley Arena uh, on Saturday night, and they are scarcers. But, you know, other than that, they're all right. And um, I drank too much. I drank far too much. And the worst thing now is, do you remember you used to go out and you used to, like, just pay for stuff in cash? Um, and you could just kid yourself, oh, I must have lost some money. You, know, you, you don't have to face the true level of spending that you made on alcohol. Well, I I had a, a good record of what I what I bought just inside Wembley Arena, and within a space of four hours, I did go to the bar eight times. One of them was for a lemonade, but that wasn't for me. That was for my wife, who wasn't even that drunk. I, was, I don't know what was wrong with me. I thought I was being unconscious. I was like, babe, get that lemonade down, yeah, while I was sort of spilling my beer over my face. Um, but it was one of those nights where, you, you know, when you sort of wake up and you just sort of say, you're right, babe. And it's like a, a really desperate, needy, you're right, babe. Because just like, if the, I will know from the first response that she gives me here whether or not I'm in trouble. And um, I think th- the best I can say is that I was tolerated. Um, the fuck you this week goes to the reaction to J.K. Rowling's lunch. Now, this might, if you're not like uh, wasting your life on social media like some of us, this one might have passed you by, but J.K. Rowling went out of her powers, right? Uh, a lot of people that would seem to share her view in terms of uh, what's now termed the gender-critical Bloomsbury set. I don't know what the fuck it's called. Uh, but people that think, people that think definitely that women can't have penises and, and so in some cases... Uh, beyond that. Um, but the truth was, she just tweeted a photo of her with those people and then the reaction was uh, was just incredible, really. And it really seemed to trigger people that that these women of a certain age were hanging out. But what was the worst thing about it was a lot of people criticising them were doing so on the basis of how they looked. So on the one hand, they were commenting on the fact that there was clearly quite a few butch lesbians there. And I just said that with total confidence. Is that right? Say butch lesbians? I don't know. Um, and then there's this one tweet that went kind of viral that, that kind of zoomed in on J.K. Rowling's open shirt. And you could see a bit of, uh, well, you could see a bit of Harry's Potters, if you know what I mean. And um, this girl, she, she tweeted and said, um, this is what happens to your titties when you're full of hate or hate shrivels your titties or, or something like this. Pretty unpleasant, right? Pretty unpleasant. I mean, first up, it's really naive. You just think, this woman, she looked in her early 20s. I thought, you know what, love? I think that's what happens to your tits once you've breastfed. <laughs> I mean, the air goes out of those tyres, right, girls? Yeah, that's life. You've given you've given bits of your tit away to feed a child. I mean, you shouldn't be mocked for it, right? And there is a problem in certain sections on the trans activist side of insulting 
how women look, right? It seems to be them to be quite a delicious joke to say, well, actually, we look like more female than you. And they seem to be, they're sort of undercutting their own argument there because they are doing what they're often accused of, which is setting up womanhood as a surface level thing, right? Like a a, a look more than a, a matter of biology and more fundamental things but you know i try not to mention specific social media stuff but the, the thing is this girl then took it a bit further and then she was she, people were piling onto her right and then she says she gets all defensive and says oh i didn't realize so much of the planet was obsessed with jk rowling's tits like you're the one that brought them into it you tweeted about it you you added the hashtag so clearly you wanted people looking at the subject to see it you love made jk rowling's tits a battleground in the culture war so fucking own it Okay, let's have a quick chat about Boris Rishi fines and all that business. All right, so news broke earlier. It's about lunchtime on Tuesday. Uh, The Boris and Rishi have been fined for an event, and it seems specifically the event where they gave the Prime Minister a birthday cake. As Boris himself tried to quantify... He was only in there nine minutes. I mean, it was nine minutes that we were being told publicly that we shouldn't do stuff like that at the time. Uh, and, you know, this it should also be said that we don't know how if there'll be more fines. Boris himself said he doesn't know whether that's the beginning or the end of it. Um, who knows? Starts off with a cake, fine. Maybe there was another party. Maybe they were fisting party. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Maybe they're just easing us into the kind of shit uh, that went on. And I suppose it's a really simple question at this point is, is should he resign? And it's, it's become a complicated thing, hasn't it? Because in the white heat of the original party gate allegations, I would have said an unequivocal yes rather than a qualified yes. I mean, I'm still, I'm still not going to vote for them at these local elections, um, by the way. I just feel like there has to be some consequences for the conduct of the last six to nine months. Um, you know, I'm going to be voting. Uh, I'll, I'll be spoiling my ballot paper, or as my mum once put it, uh, voting for the party of cock and balls. There'll be a big, big cock and balls. But uh, yeah, there has to be some consequence for some of the actions uh, of late. But if Boris was to resign now or be forced out for a vote of no confidence, it, w- it would be a slightly hard one to explain in the history books, wouldn't it? Because this is the problem is in future, we'll lose the context of what we sacrificed during lockdown. Evidently for rules, this is one of the things that is galling about it, is that they kind of knew that the rules, you know, that it didn't matter for people. You know, below a certain age, the risks of COVID were statistically much, much smaller. And that's why they acted like they did. That's why when there wasn't a vaccine around, they evidently didn't give that much of a shit, did they? That's, what's, that's what you got to hold on to, is that it was incredibly galling that they didn't take these things seriously for for good reason, right? But we were expected to be lived by it, to be in, to live by these rules, right? But... Historically, the context of why we we were so angry coming out of COVID about that will be hard to quantify. And what you might end up with is is a photo of a bloke getting a cake, <laughs> and and that is going to be that's going to be harder, isn't it? That's going to be harder when you then have the context of the war uh, in Ukraine, where evidently, and to the annoyance of many lefties, Boris has evidently struck up a, a real rapport with Vladimir. Zelensky. I mean, just just breaking out sideways for a minute. Him going over to Ukraine was something I wanted to talk about because the reaction, the reaction to that, people were so angry that he'd done a good thing. 
Because it really just pissed on their narrative, wasn't it? Was at the beginning was that uh, Boris was a, a a Putin puppet, and we were scared to do anything because um, because of all the Kremlin money, and we're not we're not towing a, enough yachts because Boris played tennis with someone or something. Right, and then you showed them a graph of all the the money that the UK had, had sanctioned, you know, compared to other countries, and they were like, "Oh, it's not a pissing contest." And you go, "Yeah, you know what? I think that if you'd have been pissing higher, i.e., if the EU had sanctioned that much money, you might have shown a graph or two. Um, but this, they're in that space now. And look, as I always say, a lot of this is uh, self-inflicted by the government. Um, that they, but that they can't give Boris or the government credit for anything. And you know, with what's happened with the fines, that's even harder. But they, ju- I found, I just felt that with the with Boris going to Kiev, right? I found it odd their their inability to just say that it was a good thing. He went out for a walkabout in, a, in Kiev, and. Uh, and they were like, well, you look so scruffy. I'm like, no one gives a fuck globally. No one cares about this whole scruffy thing. Or oh, it's just a PR photo op. Yeah, but if Ursula von der Leyen had done it, she'd go, oh my God, she's so iconic and inspiring. What most people think. But look, going back to... So I kind of think that I was at that point where I was getting really annoyed with like the lack of objectivity in the way that people respond to political news at the moment or anything to do with the Tories or indeed Boris. But then you get... This news today, and it reminds you, I suppose, to a degree of why people are so angry. But this is what I want to ask about this news. Was there pretty much anyone with any fucking sense that didn't think Boris had broken the rules or sort of misled a little bit? Right. If if we're honest, right, he, he, he comes as a package and part of that package is that he's a bit of a billy bullshitter. Right. So if most of us believe that that he had broken the rules and i think that is statistically based on polling what where the country was at does this story do the fines represent uh, an extension of the story in any way right so i i think maybe the punishment is in the the hammering they've taken in the polls already i if you look at the stats on how many people think he should resign it's down from 75% to 61% right so it's getting Getting closer to half half of people who don't actively think that he should resign, and I realise that's quite a low base to be working from. <laughs> yeah, if you include the don't knows, uh, nearly half of people don't think that Boris should resign. That's not like an act of approval, but it's tricky for the Tories because he had been recovering uh, in the polls, and these, this, the, a lot of the uh, approval ratings were done before he even went to Kiev. So. I think it would have been an easy shout, right? Say the Met had just done their fucking job and at the white heat moment of the Partygate allegations, he got a fine. It might have been quite a straightforward vote of no confidence. But since then, you know, the heir apparent Rishi... <laughs> Rishi has... Uh, oh, by the way, how did Rishi deal with getting his fine, by the way? I, I've just got this impression that he's one of those lads at school that never got, his, never got in trouble ever. And I, I just get this feeling that he would have cried... I don't know why. I just think Rishi cried when he got his fine. It's just like, but it's the same. I bet, I bet whenever he got a detention at school, got in trouble, he'd have cried. And I think he cried when he got his fine. And Re- but look, Rishi's no longer, no longer the obvious um, successor, right? So the party looking round, they're going, Liz Truss, is she really ready? Tom Tuanat's had a good little run. Who, you know, is this the right time to be doing this? And they've still got that in their minds that Boris was a vote winner. Well. You know, the, the, he was he led the party to a, a landslide victory in 2019. I guess they've got to calibrate between whether or not 
this will be done now, or if it's going to be a drip drip of fines, whether it will just slowly eat away at the party. And as I've said before, and I've said on a couple of podcasts recently, I do think it comes down, there has to be a code, right? And there has to be a bottom line of conduct, uh, transparency and honesty. And I think that, I think that morally he should go. But I think that maybe, not what most people think yet, but what people might think soon is that strategically, I mean, it's not going to be great, is it? Like what, what would, people have often said, well, you shouldn't do things that Vladimir Putin would want. What would he want right now? I think he'd be quite happy with the guy that's fucking bum chums with, is that, is that phrase still okay? With Zelensky and selling him fucking javelin missiles or whatever it is. I think he'd be quite happy for that guy to go. So I'm just saying, I think morally it's really clear cut that he should go. But strategically, it's tricky, man. It's tricky. Look, if he can ride this out, I think he fights the next election. But a lot of it is going to depend on whether or not there are further fines, whether this just becomes one of those slow deaths. Okay, as promised, here is another extract from my audio book of Where Did I Go Right? So, as I say, the paperback is out on Thursday, April 14th. Uh, the audio book is still available, sometimes on offer from Audible. And this chapter is about my time at university. It's around the 90s, and it's called Trur... Blur... Oh, I fucked it anyway. <laughs> it's called Blur, Cuba, Tracy, Emin and Me. So sit back and let Uncle Jeff tell you a little story. Chapter 5. Blur, Tracy Emin, Cuba and me. It's 1995. I'm anxious again, but this time it's not elections and public speaking. It's caffeine and being outside of my social comfort zone. I'm sitting with a group of well-spoken, mainly female students in a canteen in the bastion of left-wing agitation Goldsmiths College in New Cross. I've just had my first seminar, which seemed very grown up. Afterwards, one of the girls who we'll call Phoebe suggested going for coffee. I had never gone for coffee as a specific social activity. I hadn't heard it used as a verb before. When we got to the cafe, a bright pastel-shaded oddity with irregular seating, they all seemed to know what kind of coffee to order. At home, on the rare occasions I did have coffee, it was the largely pointless mellow bird shit my stepdad favoured. If I was at my dad's, I might step up to a Dow Egbert's, so I asked for a filter coffee to impress everyone. The barista looks confused. One of the more empathetic girls, sensing my social anxiety, chips in with, I think Jeff would like an Americano. I'm both grateful and furious with her. A common feeling when you get help you wish you didn't need. I take my seat and start drinking. This Americano is a lot stronger than the stuff I get at Dad's. My heart is racing and my senses are unbearably sharp. How is this even legal? The caffeine rush and the sense of being a social imposter are rising seemingly without limit. For some reason, they've chosen to sit on beanbags. I hate beanbags. How confident do you need to be in yourself to chill out in public like you're flaking out in your own front room? They're the same people who come round your house and sit cross-legged on the floor. You're flexible. We get it. Now, for fuck's sake, sit up properly. So I'm perched on this beanbag like a human erection, with bug eyes and the stench of imposter syndrome emanating from my armpits. Once again, fight or flight is woefully counterproductive when faced with social peril. I don't know how to sit. I've now got my arms flat against my sides like I'm pushing my chest together trying to create man cleavage. All the girls are quite attractive and have nice skin. Quite a few have bandanas in their hair. They're more confident than the girls I know round my way, but notably lacking in sass. There's one other bloke present, 
a painfully middle-class guy called Phil, but he seems even more awkward than me. Or, like he thinks, seeming awkward carries with it some kind of social merit. We're sat out in a semicircle and Phoebe is conducting the chat. So, what A-levels did everybody get? This immediately strikes me as a bit forward. Mum had always insisted, never ask a man what he earns, and inquiring over exam grades seems equally over-familiar. Phoebe is very attractive and supremely confident. The breezy kind of individual has reached this point in life having never been told to wind her neck in. As we go around the group, it transpires the A-level results average at around two Bs and a C. That might not sound like much to the A-star star generation, but exam grades are like house prices. They generally go up over time, and what seems paltry now didn't back then. I'm on the end of the line, so when it comes to me, I tell my truth and my heart beats harder still. I got three A's. Most of them laugh, then pause as they realise the implications of revealing their unconscious bias in this way. Phoebe tries to break the tension by saying, Really? In as cute a manner as possible when you're casting aspersions over someone's intellect because they seem like a plumber. Yes, really. I should be pissed off with them for putting this on me, but I'm mainly angry at myself for squirming so visibly. And I'm also thinking maybe they're right, and free A's was a bit excessive for someone like me. Then bashful Phil suddenly pipes up. Which subjects? Which subjects? I've had this sort of thing since. In short, and please tell me if this is just a class-sized chip on my shoulder, but I think Phil was presuming his intellectual superiority over me. Stung by the surprise of my grades, he now wants to quantify my working-class success. He's worried that I'll have excelled in the subjects his parents wanted him to, and probably spent a fair few grand on school fees in the process. Pricked by the possibility of masculine confrontation, I chippily reply, English literature, good start, government and politics, decent, Then I falter a little, as I know what's coming next. And theatre studies. That's really great, trills Phoebe, as if her official endorsement finally legitimises my 30 UCAS points. 30 UCAS points, which at the time would have got me into Oxford or Cambridge. When I got my surprise grades, I could have pulled out of Goldsmiths and reapplied to one of the big two. Luckily, one of my wiser teachers at Rutledge recognised that might be a leap too far for me. He'd suggested I stick with my original plan, thereby recognising the difference between a world-class striker getting a hat-trick and a bloke scoring all three off his shin. As the group disperses and I finally come down off the caffeine high, Phoebe pulls me to one side. This is it, I think. This is the non-stop university tits and arse my mates back home have promised me. Jeff, can you get me any acid? I frown. That's a big presumption on her part. Based on how I act and sound, she has assumed I have ready access to hard drugs. I do, but that doesn't stop me being offended and resolving to charge her double. If I ever seem to have a chip on my shoulder about the liberal middle classes, it's possible a good deal of it comes from my time at Goldsmiths College in the mid to late 90s. Recent alumni had included Damien Hurst, Blur and Tracy Emin. To put it in everyday terms, the place was a bit up itself. Consequently, university became an early outrider for how antagonising I found right on types. The corridors were full of toy town revolutionaries trying to save Cuba, Wales and rainforests. It wasn't that these weren't noble pursuits, but it seemed like a privileged position to have that kind of spare time. A lot of the people I knew back in Mitcham were still busy trying to save themselves and their families. I didn't fit in, which wasn't helped by the fact I didn't stay in halls of residence. Not because of the campus culture, which I didn't know anything about yet. It was because of an on-off teen romance which should have already run its course and a duty of care to my mum. I had a strong sense of belonging to where I came from, 
and wasn't ready to sever it yet. Having said that, I could still have done a bit more research into where I was going and why. I imagine families more au fait with the university experience would have had long and detailed discussions about said experience and which institution would suit their child best. I knew nothing of the political character of where I'd spend the next three years. I put as much thought into picking Goldsmiths as I would a package holiday to Malta. The real clincher for the place I'd spend three years studying was that I could drive there and back each day. It should have been to do with literature, but it partly came down to the fact my dad knew a handy little cut-through from East Dulwich to Peckham. I arrived at Goldsmiths off the back of a tumultuous period in my own life. In the spring of the year coming up to my A-level exams, my nan died one Saturday and the following day we woke up to find my mum couldn't move her legs. It was obviously a coincidence, but given their matriarchal rivalries, also a top-quality bit of thunder-stealing by mum. No one knew why mum couldn't walk anymore, least of all the doctors. They toyed with the idea of multiple sclerosis for a while, but eventually ditched that. Her medical history was dotted with mystery and remained unresolved by the time of her death. As my sister was overseas at the time, I had to pitch in a lot during the early days of mum's disablement. My stepdad worked long hours, so I had to help mum bathe and learn to function with her disabilities. Teenage boys aren't brilliant at taking care of their own hygiene, so having responsibility for someone else's was a serious escalation. Mum was never going to settle for my approach to personal hygiene. Shower for one minute, apply a full can of Lynx Africa. I didn't realise it at the time, but news of my mother's disablement had been shared among my teachers at Rutlish. It turns out the tilted head I got from the female teachers wasn't because they thought I was getting a bit sexy during sixth form. Like many working-class dads, my old man was suspicious of the whole idea of me applying for university in the first place. Studying English lit at uni to him sounded suspiciously like pissing about reading when you could be working. My predicted grades slumped as I tried to balance home and school. As the exams loomed, I revised when I could, cared for mum, and no one was expecting much. I had offers from two universities I was weighing up. One was from Goldsmiths at two Bs and a C though I was surprised to get an offer at all as I'd almost messed up the interview. At the meeting, a very smart woman in her 50s who seemed to be 90% Pashmina asked me to read a poem and respond with detailed analysis. It's hard to read poetry generally, not least when you're sitting in a very quiet office with a woman who looks like she stepped straight out of a gold blend advert. The poem was Ozymandias by Shelley. I was struggling to get to grips with its overall meaning. In fairness to her, she was trying to spoon-feed me the answers and eventually simply told me that the message was art endures. I laughed. She asked why I was laughing. Eh, that seems like something an artist would think. The First World War was more important than the poems they wrote about it. Maybe she was in the mood for some cocky back chat, but I got the offer. The other offer was an unconditional one from Kingston College in southwest London. An unconditional offer is basically an institution saying, look, we're punching above our weight here, and we will definitely put out no matter what you look like. As the exams approached and home life remained unsettled, it seemed more and more like I'd be hooking up with Kingston, but then my results took everyone by surprise. The day they came out was one of the oddest of my life. I walked into the manor house at Rutledge School and the teachers were coming out of their offices to look at me in utter bewilderment. I felt like a freak of nature, like a man who'd survived a massive dose of radiation. Miss Mitchell took me in the office and read out the results one by one. English Literature, A. Government and Politics. A. Theatre studies. A. I was confused by this total success, so I did what the men in my family usually do when we've overperformed. I went out and got drunk in an attempt to ruin the moment and restore some order. Just before that, I called Mum. She had decamped to Bogner for the week when the pressure was too much for her. 
Bognar was her Balmoral. When things got on top of Mum, she'd spear it away and hide among the fruit machines and cheap cafes until the storm blew over. She was worried her health issues had affected my study. The truth was they had, but in a good way. As it turned out, I did okay under that kind of pressure. If university got tough, I might have to ask her to see what else she could come up with, or whether Dad could maybe hop back on the motorbike and see if he could do something with the other arm. My boy's going to university, Mum screamed on the other end of the phone. This was a first for the entire family, and for a woman who started life with nothing, a very proud moment. University was the first time I realised I was properly working class. At South London Comps, there were always people with more and people with less. Here at Goldsmiths, there was no doubt I was bottom of the class food chain. The economic situation of most of the students was unfamiliar, but as a place, New Cross was not. It seemed like the epitome of South East London. High-rise blocks and industrial units, old-looking buildings made black by the constant belch of the A2. Culturally, the area didn't have much to offer. The main local nightclub was, somewhat literally, called The Venue. I didn't go there often as the students didn't seem to enjoy dancing properly. They danced ironically, which I've never understood. I love dancing. It's probably the only time I feel in the moment. But I couldn't get there with these kids around me moving like a cross between Morrissey and Jim Carey. During another beanbag circle jerk, we were discussing what everyone would be doing for recess. I still wanted to call it half-term because recess sounded too fancy. A lot of them seemed to have daddies working abroad. I'm going to see daddy in the States. I'm going to see daddy in Hong Kong. Then one girl said, I'm going to see daddy in Saudi. I made the mistake of hearing in Saudi as one word, like incognito. Why are you going in Saudi? I asked, hoping that I could deduce a bit more meaning. Because that's where he works, she replied patiently. But where does he work? I countered. In Saudi? She repeated, now as confused as me. Saudi is short for Saudi Arabia, said Phil, who always seemed to be hanging around for my moment of maximum social awkwardness. However, Phil was the only one who'd worked out my mistake, so I tried to style it out. I got so focused on trying to seem casual, I forgot that this latest circle boast would come around to me. Where are you going, Jeff? Nowhere, I said. I'll be working nights at the post office. Instead of laughing... This time, they resorted to embarrassed silence, which was probably worse. I couldn't tell if they felt bad for me or if I'd embarrassed myself yet again. It's okay, said one of the girls eventually. I think it's great to earn your own money. I did not understand this point at all. She was talking about earning your own money like it was some contrarian hot take, a radical new concept that may catch on given time. I bristled. This was becoming a common problem with my social interactions at Goldsmiths. If they looked down on me, I got chippy. If they were supportive, I felt patronised. I was sensing the class chip on my shoulder which would only grow in size. A proper chip, mind, none of this triple-cooked sweet potato bollocks. You could feel sorry for me, but I got some great stories working those post office shifts. The bloke who bought a six-month share in an ice cream van but got October to March. The woman who had bingo debts. The old fella who reckoned he owned a racehorse with Frank Zappa. As I've got older, I've realised working-class kids tend to have more interesting stories. Maybe that's the reason middle-class kids travel so much. They get to 18 and realise they need to bank some decent anecdotes, as the story about that time their parents built a conservatory ain't going to cut it. At another lame college party, I was standing with yet another group of blokes all trying to win at being beta males. The party wasn't like the kind I knew. It was already 9pm and no one was wasted. The volume of the music was at roughly the level you'd find in a lift. A bloke claimed he had hash for the whole party yet pulled out what looked like half an oxo cube. 
A guy called Ralph was holding court, performatively detailing his sexual frustrations and unrequited passion for a girl on his course. He was short but dressed smartly in mustard chinos and a burgundy shirt. He held his wine glass unnaturally and drank from it less often than seemed normal. He spoke like he was going for the home run aphorism every time, like someone somewhere was writing this all down and his witticisms would survive him. I found it odd that he was discussing his sexual failure in this way. With my mates, we'd keep the idea of crashing and burning as quiet as possible, but he seemed to want some cachet for the self-deprecation. He finished another Subwildian riff by saying, I'm out of options. I guess this will go unconsummated. I decided to speak my first words in about 20 minutes. Have you ever just asked her? What? He said. Asked her if she wants to have sex with you. He laughed. A knowing laugh way beyond his years or life experience. I'm not sure that's the answer. The other three lads chuckled. However, I'd been drinking at a proper pace, so felt more confident than usual. Well, everything else you've done has been fuck all you, so it's got to be worth a go. His mates laughed again, but this time it was with me rather than at me. They were probably just as tired of hearing about his pretentious romantic failings as I was. Oh, Jeff, he said, trying to wrestle back some status. Never change. Never change? Where did this fella get off? Once again, I wasn't looking for his approval. I was giving him sound advice. I wasn't a Lafario by any stretch of the imagination, but I got the sense that I might have had a few more results than Ralphie boy. No, I hadn't experienced unrequited love, but I had copped off after a few vodka and oranges at the Blue Orchid nightclub in Croydon. Maybe I didn't know Brett from Suede, but I knew Brett from Tootin who could do you a fake ID. I hadn't seen much theatre, but I was around at the birth of Speed Garage and had stood in the DJ booth next to Shanks and Bigfoot. I didn't know exactly what Lodge was, but was pretty sure I'd had it. I didn't say any of that, but I did assure Ralph that I hoped he'd never change, and by that I meant remain a virgin. Having said that, as university life wore on, I lost whatever small touch I had with the ladies. The effort of caring for my mum and getting the good grades took it out of me and I idled for a while. I tried to get to know women, but the girls at Goldsmiths were a different breed. Serious and politically motivated, they didn't respond well to the banter which had served me well up until this point. The boozy, sexually forward girl power movement had largely bypassed Britain's most stridently liberal arts college. To have any chance of getting off with a girl, it seemed you had to have a social conscience, speak out against the patriarchy and social inequality, and, preferably, not do nights at the post office. I eventually took the Women in Literature course, as I thought there were bound to be plenty of birds there, which illustrates the problem with my mindset. I was a bloke who thought reading A Vindication of the Rights of Women is a good way to cop off. Another problem was that I couldn't suppress the dickish elements of my character. It seemed that every week, no matter who the female author was, everyone on the course would eulogise about them, partly because they were women and they wanted to pray at the altar of feminist icons. Echo chambers aren't as new as we'd like to think. Unfortunately, there were only so many times I could hear the word empowering before I decided to put the cat amongst the pigeons. I decided to find fault with every single writer, even if I thought they were brilliant, just to make the seminars more interesting. I had some niche takes on some of the great female authors of British literature. Austin, boring. Virginia Woolf, up herself. Sylvia Plath, terrible mother. I could see the group turning against me, but I got off on it. You might think this was by way of a rehearsal for the guy who'd later pick so-called contrarian stances on the mass report. But if I'm being provocative, there's usually a point to it. Without any dissent, the course wasn't literary criticism, it was blowing yet more smoke up the arse of a legend. A TV producer once said to me, 
The last thing anyone wants to see is a room of people agreeing with each other. This made sense, maybe because I come from a household where vibrant debate was something that happened over breakfast. Creatively, consensus is essentially a stagnant thing. Once it's reached, there's no forward move. Faced with the challenge of my prickly takes on the course, the rest of the group had to justify their praise rather than just continually say they were blown away. I'm not sure if I'm now proud or embarrassed about my behaviour, but it certainly made the seminars more interesting, even if my sex life continued to tread water. This intellectually boisterous behaviour may have been buoyed up by the new lad movement of the time. All of a sudden, some intelligent people were defending the idea that being a bloke who liked women and football didn't automatically mean you were a shithead. It's easy to forget now, but masculinity and football had awful image problems in the late 80s and early 90s. When I started going to watch Wimbledon FC regularly, my nan, ever the one for keeping up standards, said, OK, but you don't always need to tell people. As the decade wore on, however, and with the country showing a rare moment of unity and English patriotism during Euro 96, the perception of football as a hobby was starting to change. The trophy didn't come home, but briefly the idea of being able to wave the St George's Cross did. It felt like a moment where English patriotism had been reclaimed, but it didn't last long. Waving the flag during football tournaments is tolerated in polite circles as patriotism. Wave at any other time, however, and it is often construed as something far more sinister. Old-fashioned masculinity was bolstered further when you then had both Oasis and Blur turning up the geezer points to 11 in the top 40 charts. The Gallagher brothers' machismo seemed authentic, like they'd flushed their own heads down the toilet as a hangover cure. However, I found it odd watching someone like Damon Albarn don his flat cap and head off down the dog track. If he did it now, it would probably be called working-class blackface, but back then, it just struck me as plain inauthentic. Being common people was cool according to the dominant Britpop music at the time, but I wish someone had told the girls at Goldsmiths. I could have taken them for a real night at the dogs. I even knew a bloke who owned a greyhound. But, as Jarvis Cocker rightly intimated, the desire to take a deep dive into working-class culture wasn't entirely earnest. If the girl in the song called her daddy could stop it all. If I called mine, he'd remind me I could have been earning a wage by now and in a position to stop it myself. Nonetheless, it was reassuring to see that being blokey was returning from pariah status. It was ambitious of liberal thinking to imagine you could take the cold, hard realities of testosterone and puberty then somehow spin those into a generation of pastel-shaded beta males. I understand why it happened in the first place. The bawdy 70s and early 80s replete with sexist humour and unacceptable behaviour in the workplace had created a moral mandate for the new man. But, as a phrase, new man was doomed from the start. Put bluntly, it made you sound like a bit of a wanker. One of my mates came back to my house for tea during the back end of sixth form. Top of the Pops was on and some scantily clad girl group were gyrating around on stage. My mum, with a curious tendency towards locker room banter, nodded as if to say, what do you think of that, lads? My friend, one of my most middle-class pals at the time, looked a bit uncomfortable, then said, this is objectification. My mum, aggravated by both his tone and message, narrowed her gaze and said, Oh, you one of these new men, are you? The way she said new man implied that she didn't think it was a continuation of masculinity in any true sense of the word. In a strange distillation of the post-feminist sexist conundrum, she finished, maybe they want to dress like slappers. Blunt though mum's language may have been, she was onto a paradox that would continue to dog feminism. In the mid to late 90s, dressing provocatively and being sexually forward was seen by many as an active part of feminism. When Jerry Halliwell appeared in That Union Jack Dress, 
It felt like her cleavage wasn't just for the male gaze, it was part of her armour to take on the world. By contrast, one criticism of the girl power and subsequent ladette movement was that they simply recreated some of the worst elements of masculinity. Personally speaking, I found women much more intimidating back then, partly because the women I knew really were. I socialised with one group of girls who would each randomly get one boob out in the pub and carry on talking as if nothing different was happening. It was bizarre, like they were in a waiting room for a mammogram. Strange things happen when you get on the front foot with men. You'd think the blokes in the pub would have all stared and tried to get nearer, but we all got a bit flustered and averted our eyes coquettishly. Another issue with the new man or the woke man is that he is rarely the ladies' man. I'm sure there are many women who will attest to sensitivity and writing poetry being a big turn-on, but in the working-class circles I grew up in, those kind of blokes never seem to have much success. A lot of women like men who do manly things. It feels odd to even have to say that like it's a challenging viewpoint, but such is the power of some liberal orthodoxies that stating the bleeding obvious can seem contrarian. The appeal of old-fashioned masculinity is apparent in my own marriage. It's clear I'm never going to get true credit from my wife for the heroic act of writing comedy. It doesn't involve strength or obvious personal risk. If civilised society collapsed and we had to rebuild from scratch, no one would be looking for my witty take on having to shit in a hole. However, on the one rare occasion I do some manual work, putting together a simple piece of flatback, for example, I can see the difference in how my wife relates to me. I once made a curve round desk and she laid sandwiches on the floor, reverentially, like a tribute to a returning Viking conqueror. Okay, I hope you're enjoying uh, Listen with Jeff there, and we will get back to it in a second. That's just a reminder, that's from my book, Where Did I Go Right?, the paperback of which is out on Thursday, the April, April, the April of 18th. The April, that's not even it, it's fucking... <laughs> I fluffed that. That was a spectacular fluff, wasn't it? Thursday, April the 14th. There you go, it's out Thursday, April the 14th, and the audiobook is available for purchase or get it free on Audible or do whatever you do. We've got a few more new patrons here. Richard Warren. Richard Warren sounds like a little psycho kid. You know that kid in your class? Richard Warren, and be like, one day you just feel like, yeah, I'll just give that kid a slap around the back of the head. But even a hard kid in class goes, no, don't touch him, mate. Richard Warren, mate, if you touch his hair, mate, he actually bit a teacher's eye out. We've got a couple of one-namers here, which we always presume that they're trying to keep their... They're working in clandestine. Well, they're, they're working in left-wing institutions. They can't afford to be identified. we got Peter. Peter, who, where are you working, Peter? Eh? Peter, is, no, not, it's not a primary school, is it? You're a lecturer, Peter, aren't you? You're a lecturer in women's studies. And you've had enough, Peter. <laughs> you've had enough like me at university. You've cracked. You don't know what to do about it, but you're... You're so close to retirement, so what you do is you secretly listen to me and then you listen to guys like Joe Rogan and it just gets you through the day, doesn't it, Peter? Oh, we've also got another uh, one-namer, which is Dale. Dale, I think, is a returning uh, patron, so always check your accounts if you were a patron and wish to be a patron and haven't heard anything for a while because there are updates uh, coming regularly. Uh, Paul Rudling, Paul Rudling, Paul Rudling, Rudlings. You, sound, you know what you sound like? You sound like some sort of rural fucking beer. Rudlings. Do you know one of those one of those brands that got big in the nineties? Point of Rudlings. You know, you know when they were allowed to advertise alcohol, but still point out that it's actually fun. <laughs> Rudlings for when you want to cheer the bloody hell up. <laughs> now you have to add alcohol. Well, you just have to be like abstract about it. You can't just show. I mean, like it would be honest if they had what they should show is alcohol 
at its three best levels, like top, medium and bottom, right? So top outcome is you're a bit loose, you're having a chat, you're having fun, you're having a good night out. Medium is you're kind of not feeling it, like the beer's gone down a bit weird, it's just made you a bit tired. And then bottom level is you're just blackout drunk, do you know what I mean? You're just you're on the floor at someone's dinner party trying to eat their carpet. <laughs> That's so specific. It made it sound like I've done that. I have not done that. And Graham Allen. Graham Allen, that just sounds like... great. You sound like an umpire. Umpire Graham Allen there with his uh, trademark zoomy finger. That's a thing he's been working on there, Graham Allen. Uh, a lot of umpires just put the finger up, but he does what he calls the zoomy finger. Okay, mate, it's not fucking about you, superstar. Uh, and yeah, so those are the patrons. If you wish to be part of the next live show, um, the online show, which is next... April the 21st, then do join up. Just go to Patreon, search Jeff Norcott or what most people think, and you can be part of the Patreon community. And you have direct line to message me. And all I ever say is a couple of messages, but don't get stalky. Anyway, let's get back to the story. Get comfy. A couple of years into university life, I was starting to become a bit more trendy by osmosis. Not a new man exactly. But I'd learned that knowing who Swade were was an icebreaker. As the Britpop wave dominated popular culture, I started going to plenty of gigs. It seemed to be one area I could hold the edge over my middle-class beta male competition. A lot of them talked about music. I thought I'd actually get out and hear some. I saw Dodgy, Space, Audio, Web and Blur. However exciting this may sound, young people today should maintain a healthy suspicion of 90s nostalgia. There was a buoyant indie music scene, but that was mainly because we only had a few TV channels and everyone still watched Top of the Pops. I'm sure bands of that calibre exist now, but a middle-aged bloke like me doesn't know about them, as I've retreated into a cultural cave with the songs of Elbow on a giant dongle. The charts back then still had a fair sprinkling of shit. Now most of the top 40 at least sounds credible, but in the 90s, for every oasis, there was a Steps. For every higher state of consciousness, there was a Cotton Eye Joe. There was a lot about the 90s that was crap. It was possibly the worst era for alcoholic drinks, vodka and orange, hooch, Thunderbird, MD2020. Even beers had lost confidence in just being good beers. They had to have a widget or lime or the word ice in their name. This, however, did not stop us getting very wasted. Indeed, it's impossible to form an objective view of the music as Generation X set new records in drug and alcohol consumption. Records that will probably never be broken now, we were the Roger Federers of getting off our tits. Everything sounds better when you're on a pill, and maybe if we'd heard Ed Sheeran back then, we'd have realised he was every bit as good as Real to Real featuring the Mad Stuntman. The high watermark of that cultural era was Oasis at Nebworth, which I managed to blag a ticket for. To call it a gig was an understatement. It was a festival. But like all huge live events, it suffered under the weight of its own expectation. The era we were living through was thirsting for its own Woodstock moment. However, Woodstock became iconic on reflection. In the postmodern 1990s, Nebworth was being sold as iconic right from the get-go, which was a lot of pressure on a single weekend. Everyone arriving seemed to be aware of the potential import of the day. One in 20 British adults had applied for tickets, so being there at all made you feel anointed. You could see it in the swagger of all the young men arriving on site, unconvincingly trying to mimic the cocksure gait of the Gallagher brothers, I was never fully on side with the attitude or fashion trends of the time. The swagger seemed forced, and the fisherman hats made the blokes look like dickheads. In fact, 90s menswear was a shit show from start to finish. None of the clothes looked vaguely masculine. 
Bloke suits were deliberately oversized and jeans had different coloured pockets. Women wore dungarees and massive sports jumpers. A modern listener might think, how androgynous. But that would be giving us more credit of forethought than we deserved. We weren't making any kind of statement. You just needed to be comfortable when you were in a semi-permanent state of come down. The weather on the day of Nebworth was good, but the vibe was all off. There's something painful about your late teens and early 20s. Kids are naive. Teenagers are self-conscious. But the late teens and early 20s is a strange hinterland before adulthood. At liberty to do anything, but at ease with nothing. Particularly the boys. The girls seemed to be basking in the power of sexual attraction. The boys were burdened by the pursuit of it. Even for Oasis at Nebworth, I presumed I should be on the pool. Being a young man involves huge acts of self-delusion. No matter what your strike rate of being in reality, you have to step out into very complex situations and kid yourself, you'll be walking out there with a lady on your arm. It's no wonder young men make the best frontline soldiers. The day started with the Chemical Brothers, one of the big dance acts breaking into the mainstream. I liked their stuff, not least because it didn't have any cliched words to sing along to. The Manic Street Preachers were next. Their powerful brand of anthemic indie music was experiencing a big revival. Then Ocean Colour Scene, the kind of stodgy, backwards-looking Britpop that gave a clue as to how the scene would dry up. People described them as great music to get stoned to, which isn't much of a compliment. Doritos tasted good when you were stoned, but that didn't make them good crisps. It was already confident of Noel and Liam to think they could follow all those acts. Then it transpired the band on directly before them was the insane theatrical rave monsters, The Prodigy. Knowing what I now know about live performance, this was madness. Like booking Michael McIntyre as your tour support. They obliterated the gig and even debuted a new track, Breathe, which sounded like an instant classic. Their music made a lot more sense to me. A lot of the Britpop seemed to be a protracted tribute to the past but these lads sounded like they were on a day trip from the future. By the time Oasis came on and plodded their way through stodgy numbers like Columbia, they felt like a cheese board rather than the main course. I sang along like everyone else, but couldn't identify with the lyrics. I didn't really know what a champagne supernova was. I don't think many of us did. Even if we identified with it, we couldn't afford to experience one. I didn't get the constant obsession with sliding away either, or what a wonder wall comprised of. I really wanted to like the music. I was going with the crowd. It felt like something was happening and I needed to be part of it, but it didn't fully connect with me. The iconic day ended like many iconic days, stuck in a massive traffic jam trying to leave the venue, the moment having well and truly passed. This kind of musical bandwagon hopping had also started to happen to me politically. I was swept up with the impatience to have the heir apparent Tony Blair installed as Prime Minister. It was a weird time, having a leader of the opposition so obviously destined for the top job. It was particularly odd because the country seemed to be booming, culturally and economically, but no one associated the rise of Britpop, Euro 96 or the money in their pockets with the seedy, exhausted Tory government. The Tories had got mired in sleaze, and for every percentage point growth in GDP, there was an MP having his toes sucked. Politics over the last 30 years has become all about the brand. During this time, the Tories was dodgy-looking blokes in suits hanging out with a dominatrix. It turned out the country could broadly deal with the pits closing and VAT on domestic fuel, but having to picture David Meller getting it on in his full Chelsea kit was a straw that made the camel violently sick. I decided, like my father, that I was a Labour man and was looking forward to exercising my democratic right for the first time at the polls in May 1997. It felt good to say, I'm Labour, but I couldn't explain why. 
Despite the country's optimism and impatience for change, my mum, ever the shrewd reader of politics, had her doubts over Tony Blair. He's an oily bastard, that one. Mark my words. When they seem too good to be true, they usually are. I never knew if she was talking about Blair specifically or her general experience with men. Look at him, my mum snorted derisively, as yet another news clip aired of the PM in waiting, swanning around like the fucking Pope. Despite my desire to believe in the new messiah, I got her point. He was way too earnest and we weren't used to political leaders being that young or presentable. Like a moderately attractive teacher, it was impossible to work out whether he was real-life good-looking or good-looking for a politician. He was tall, had a full head of hair and threw in the odd bit of estuary English. Not only that, he'd sometimes roll up his cuffs and drink a mug of tea on a walkabout, though we never found out if the tea was proper or herbal. Now used to life in a wheelchair, Mum had developed a pretty dark sense of humour around her disability. Her nickname among the local faces in Mitcham was Jan the Pram, or the Iron Lady. Not because of her political leanings, but because her wheelchair looked as sturdy as she did. There had been rumours in the build-up to the 1997 election that Tony Blair might be visiting our constituency, Mitcham. His walkabouts had become akin to a rock star meeting their adoring fans. Mum felt Blair had cultivated a messiah complex which needed to be pricked, so her plan was to play up to it. Like many wheelchair-bound people, she wasn't completely without movement in her legs, so her plan was that she would use her disabled status to get to the front of whatever crowd had assembled, get his attention, grab his hand and put it on her hand, then slowly stand up, take a few uncertain steps and proclaim herself healed. She never got her chance, unfortunately. Like most sensible people, Blair gave Mitchum a swerve but I'd have loved to have seen Blair's slick PR team's reaction to such an odd moment. Although an arguably bigger spanner in the works was the possibility Mum would lose her motability allowance if anyone saw her on telly standing up. A sobering consideration, which consigned her to calling him Tony Hare and other various pot shots during the six o'clock news. By the time election night came round, it felt more like a coronation than a public vote. It wasn't if Labour would win, but how quickly and by how much. John Major tried to reprise his little soapbox trick, but what had seemed endearing in 1992 felt embarrassing during the heyday of Cool Britannia. Blair looked like he might play bass guitar, while Major looked like he still played with trains. Early in the day on the 1st of May 1997, I savoured my first ever vote in a general election. My mum set it up as a big day. Ever since I could remember, she'd seethed over poor turnouts and lament that in other countries, people die for the right to vote. I got the impression that she thought people in Britain should be shot for passing up that opportunity. Mum believed in democracy despite running a matriarchy in her own home. We all had to vote in the general election, but no one else had a say as to whether we were allowed to watch telly on Christmas Day. The polling booth that day represented a rare thing in life, an entirely new place. As you grow up, you're aware that there are certain buildings which are, by definition, adult. Pubs, bookies, sex shops... Places you wait outside while the grown-up goes in, apart from sex shops unless you had a very bad childhood. Every time you cross the threshold of one of these sacred shrines of adulthood feels like a milestone, but you still cross with trepidation. One thing that struck me was just how quiet the polling station was. I don't know what I'd been anticipating, but it felt like a cross between a library and a chapel of rest. I hadn't really cultivated a sensible expectation of what a voting booth would look like, partly because I hadn't encountered booths of any kind. When I finally saw it, merely a squared-off area with a small curtain, I realised I had subconsciously been expecting something that looked like the TARDIS. But I still remember the unique feeling of being in the voting booth for the first time. 
It's unusual to have any space in public entirely to yourself. I like the voting booth for the same reason I like toilets. A toilet is a rare place with a lock. No one else can just barge in. How many parents utilise that facility now, when a 40-minute poo is actually them playing with their smartphone or crying? There are very few places where we have guaranteed solitude. Yet here I was, in a scout hut in Mitcham, and no one dared encroach on my space. I looked at the candidates and marked an X next to Labour. I felt I was doing something in line with my heritage, but despite my old man being a union rep, things were less clear-cut for working-class people in the south-east compared to the north. Not all working-class people necessarily voted Labour. For example, I was never entirely sure how my grandparents voted. They were the generation of people who answered every phone call with suspicion, so there was no way they'd ever tell me for certain. Though my granddad was part of the generation who voted in Attlee straight after the war, and he did seem to use the phrase working man a fair bit. And my nan's roast dinners came in the kind of modest portions you'd expect under socialism. I strode out of the polling station confidently. It was probably the first and last time I ever felt total conviction about the political party I'd voted for. It felt morally good to have voted for the Labour Party. I enjoyed telling people. It felt like code for, I'm a good person. That kind of certainty is a preserve of the young. As you get older, you realise British democracy is usually a choice between the least shit of two options. You're going to get waterboarded, but you get a choice between sparkling or still. Indeed, if someone strides confidently into a polling station, it suggests they haven't really thought it through. As the night's results played out, I sensed something wasn't entirely right with my reaction. As wave after wave of blue turned red, I shouldn't have just been pleased, I should have been ecstatic, rejoicing, added to the whoops and cheers I could hear out the windows in the otherwise still spring night. However, even at that age, my vote was primarily a pragmatic one. I didn't feel the joy many felt of Michael Portillo being unseated in Enfield Southgate. I guess my political alarm bells should have been ringing there and then. The archetypal Tory Toff getting his ass handed to him in his own backyard. I was the son of a trade union man of two disabled parents living in council property, and all I could feel was a bit sorry for the bloke. It can't be nice losing your job in public, let alone when the country responds with a conga. Maybe that's been my problem all along. Even then I struggled to think of the Tories as baddies. They may have been pompous, prats, privileged or downright pricks, but I couldn't credit that more than a tiny percentage of them were moustache-twiddling baddies intent on making people's lives worse. Nevertheless, it still was exciting even if I wasn't getting swept up in the same manner as everyone else at Goldsmiths. The result was momentous, particularly for people around my age who hadn't known anything other than Tory rule. Blair was young, progressive and seemed like a nice bloke. How could any politician who drank tea and took off his tie ever get detached from the people? His top three priorities were education. Maybe we should have asked him his fourth. It might have been something to do with regime change. Things can only get better was a nice idea. But more importantly, Labour seemed like a much more competent option for government at that time. If they'd focused on competence over the last 10 years rather than the moral high ground, the left today might not have spent so much time in opposition. Okay, so that is the extract uh, from my book, Where Did I Go Right, uh, Cuba Pleur. I think that's uh, chapter four or something like that. But uh, but yeah, if you fancy more of that, like I say, the paperback, if I mentioned the paperback being out enough, it's out. You can go Amazon, you can go Waterstones, you can you can get it in, in WH Smith's travel shops. Do you know what I mean? Like I know some of you lefties, you might have to like hide it in a paper bag like you're stealing porn. Uh, but uh, yeah, please, if you, if you either have read the book and you haven't listened to the audio book yet, get the 
audio book and if you haven't read the book or if you've done it, you know what I'm fucking getting at. Why can't I? This is too late for me to be recorded. We've got one letter. Let's do it now. This is a letter from one of my patrons. So as mentioned, they get. Uh, I will always read their messages and I always respond eventually. Uh, this is from Andrew Tulip. Andrew says, Jeff, I don't normally get massive up, massively upset with this government. He might have, <laughs> might have said that before this week. But, uh, but I feel I just have to say something about this help they were offering to bring Ukrainian people from a war zone. My girlfriend had a Ukrainian father and is keen to sponsor a friend to come from Ukraine to this country. First, it is a stupidly uh, complex system to fill out. Even I struggled, never mind a Ukrainian person doing it themselves. I mean, I'm pretty sure that you mean that because it's a language thing. You're not just saying Ukrainian people are inherently shit at admin. Uh, Three weeks later, she gets an appointment for the council to visit and inspect the property to ensure it's genuine and has the space. Totally understand there needs to be some control. But now, get this, she has to get a gas safety certificate before they will approve her. Gas safety? These people risk a bomb on their home and now being shot on the journey to Poland to get a flight here. Unbelievable. I mean, it does seem... We do love a bit of health and safety in this country, don't we? It, just, it does seem galling for all the all the hardships, all the risks that they've had to take on this long and treacherous journey. And then you get some fucking pen pusher at the local council going, yeah, I'm sorry, you can't quite move in yet because we haven't got a, uh, uh, an up-to-date gas safety. We're going to have to get one. That will probably take two weeks to process. And we've sort of made out like a... It's the government or like we're not accommodating to refugees. We're just fucking admin junkies is what we are. Have you ever noticed that thing that happens with people from the UK? Is we always say like we hate uh, health, oh, health and safety. Drives me mad. Drives me mad, the old health and safety. And then what happens, right? The first time you go abroad and you see a health and safety risk, you're obsessed with it, aren't you? <laughs> you know when you go in the apartment and there's some exposed wine? You're like, babe, babe, look at that, look at that. Potential death trap there. Babe, babe, look out the window. Look at that. Pregnant woman with three kids on a moped. I mean, it's a disgrace, isn't it? Health and safety gone mad. But the other way. So it's definitely, I'm sorry to hear that, man. Look, I hope it gets sorted. But hearing stuff like that, it just makes you realise that we really do have a lot of people earning money in this country for just getting in the way of shit. Okay, that is the end of this week's show. Do join us next week when we will have Simon Evans on the show. The Simon Evans, always a brilliant guest. Always people have loved it when he's been on. It just remains for me to read out some of the five-star reviews. If you leave star five-star reviews, only five stars, I will re-read them out. I will read <laughs> What time is it now? It's half past nine. This is the Jeff that you get at half past nine. My, this is one of my sister. She never rings the house after nine o'clock. She knows that I do not make any sense. Uh, this is a message from a uh, Patreon who said that I was... I claim that they, from their name, that they were a glue sniffer. He said, right about the glue sniffing, wrong about being the hardest in year 11. Well, I guess after you sniffed enough glue, you're not really in a good position to fight. Uh, this is from Single Putt that says, excellent show, Jeff. Even my left-leaning sister-in-law thinks that you're pretty good. Simon Bird. Thank you, Birdie. And this was a praise for the Matt Ford episode. It says, well, worth a listen from JMG. And, uh, yeah, going back to a couple of uh, people... Yeah, I did get a couple for the Matt Ford episode that weren't as positive. Just to say, if you give me like a really low star review for one episode, that counts against the whole podcast. So, you know, you can, <laughs> what am I really arguing for? Still give me a five star, but put the criticism in the five star, maybe or, or a five, four star. But yeah, it, feel, it, feels, uh, it feels a bit harsh. Do you know what I mean? Just to mark down the whole podcast just for... 
just for one episode, you know, we're 136 in. But as I say, I will always have a range of people on the podcast. And hey, if one person isn't to your fancy, then there'll surely be one turning up that is more so. And that will be the case, I suspect, next week with Simon Evans. So, you know, so stay lucky, buy the paperback, don't get fined. And if you do go on a big night out drinking, pay for everything in cash, because then at least the following day you won't have the fucking evidence staring you back in the face. Podcast. 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 Podcast.